The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here again with my colleague, official agitator, which he does every once in a while, friend and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Moggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. So I am interested in Yoda in on this one because... They say we get into some dark art here. We get into some voodoo and witchcraft and wizardry. <laughs> into one, right? We're talking about marketing and promoting and putting yourself out there. So I'm looking forward yeah. to it. So today's guest is really a classic demonstration of transforming a formal education in the one field and morphing it into a global business development entity, which is pretty cool. We're going to get to talk about this. But it clearly demonstrates you know, that your education really doesn't have to define your career. And in this case, our guest started out with a Juris Doctorate degree, which I think is the highest education you can get in terms of law from the University of Illinois. And then you also ended up with a political science degree, bachelor from Northwestern University. And you're now heading up a number of global business service providers. Welcome to the show, Ross Kambroski. Thanks so much, Robert and Adam. Uh, happy to be here talking with you and your listeners. Yeah. Ross, one of your current projects, you've literally helped out thousands of businesses around the world. I mean, that really doesn't do justice. I mean, it's tens of thousands. We always like to throw out some big names, Amazon, Microsoft, LG, a few household names that, that you've helped out. So you clearly have a passion for what you're doing, particularly in the world of entrepreneurship and startups, obviously product design and some other things. Man, where does that drive come from? Tell our audience. So I started becoming entrepreneurial in law school. In college, I had always worked two to three jobs and and I was busy doing things learning. But in law school, I just started exploring new things and starting different groups, started a school newspaper. And when I started practicing law, I think there were a couple of trends that just tend to intersect. I started practicing law in 95. My first 13 years was as a trial lawyer. And in 95, the internet was just becoming commercialized. And so while I was a trial lawyer working on intellectual property, regulatory, complex commercial cases, I also started building a practice advising startups and working with companies that were building new businesses in that space. And so that really reflected well with what I was personally finding interesting, which is learning new things, learning about new technologies, learning about new businesses, learning about new industries. And and that's just, just continued throughout. Yeah. And so people really need to appreciate that you've touched on a lot of businesses and helped them grow. There's got to be a certain amount of satisfaction that has brought your career and those around you, obviously. For sure. That's one driver. I mean, I found over my career, both as a lawyer, but now as a business owner, that doing good for other people, and you can define it many different ways, doing good for other people is really important to sustaining a passion in something. It's really hard to be a construction engineer if you're not passionate about it. It's hard to do your best work as an architect if you're not passionate about it. Same works for lawyers, for doctors, for entrepreneurs running any kind of business. And so, 
So that passion for me today with CrowdSpring translates into helping over 220,000 freelancers around the world from every country connect with small businesses and big brands. You mentioned a few of them and agencies on design and naming services, everything from logo design to web design. So it's helping people around the world make a living and then helping businesses find high quality custom design at affordable prices. That's interesting because I think lawyers and engineers have sort of similar career paths because they wind up going through like four years of like academic training. Then there's like doing their articles or their mentoring under a senior person, right? Then they sort of become made men for want of a better word, right? So like you're eight or nine years in before you're sort of vaguely useful. Then you're in what I call a cubicle mill, right? Where you're in a cubicle and you're doing your work and you're in a professional services business, right? So you're charging for time. Your scale is measured in time and hours built. That is quite similar to sort of building engineering in a way. And yet somehow you've made the leap over to entrepreneurship and coaching. And that's just not a natural thing. What made you walk away from a lucrative sort of law career? Why, Why did you do that? So for a lot of lawyers who leave the practice of law, they just become dissatisfied. They're frustrated with their clients. They're frustrated with their colleagues, frustrated with courts. That was not my experience. I was good at what I did. I had phenomenal colleagues. I had phenomenal clients. And I was sort of reaching the pinnacle of my career when I left. But I was entrepreneurial. And one of the things that caused me to take a serious look was running into a problem. So I was a partner at a mid-sized Chicago law firm redesigning our website. And I did what every mid-sized firm does. I put together an RFP, Request for Proposals. We sent it out to agencies. We interviewed, I think, five agencies. We hired one, paid them a lot of money. This was in 2005 and waited several months for them to start showing us the designs. So this was to redo our, our firm website. Now, this was important to me because when I first started practicing in 95, I built by hand, one of the first law firm websites on the internet for my first law firm. So we got these designs from the agency and I hated it, absolutely hated everything they did. We wanted to stand out. We wanted to present a different image to the general public and to business clients than other law firms, but they just made us look like everybody else. And so I was frustrated. I went home and I said, there's got to be a better way for me, for people like me, for businesses to buy design services, because this process of RFPs is painful, expensive, time-consuming. And you know in the construction industry how painful it is. And if you're bidding and participating in these RFPs as a contractor, you're losing most of them. And so you're spending a lot of time losing most of your marketing efforts. And if you're reviewing them, it's equally painful for you because you have you know, a 100 or 200-page document and you're looking at tens or hundreds of pages of responses. So I started thinking about ways we can change this model because I wasn't happy that a business or an individual looking for design services had to find somebody in a haystack, trust them to do the work, and then pay them whether they liked it or not. And so that led to a series of experiments for about six months where we ended up launching CrowdSpring, which turns that model upside down. Instead of Bids and proposals. I'll just give you a flavor for how this worked on CrowdSpring in 2008 when we launched and how it works today. You're looking for a new logo for your existing or new business. You post your requirements. We take you through a questionnaire and you get actual designs for your logo, not bids and proposals. You set the budget. You set the time. You pick from dozens of designs. You pick your favorite. So it's like buying a television. 
It's like buying furniture for a building you just completed. You see it, you like it, you buy it. It gives clients more power and it empowers designers to work exclusively based on their talent, not where they went to school. Now, you can't really do that in architecture. You can't take somebody that's never designed a building and ask them to design a building and then build that building. So there are certain trades where science, engineering, licensure is important. In visual design, it's not important. If it looks good, it looks good. It doesn't matter if it was created by a taxi driver or a designer with 20 years of experience. And that's the business we build and in the process, reduce pricing 10 to 50 times below what people traditionally used to pay. I love it. <laughs> Just to throw engineering professionals under the bus a little bit here. In my experience, architects tend to be better at promoting themselves and marketing themselves, right? And this is why they're always on the cover doing the grip and green and the engineer is nowhere to be seen, right? That bothers me a lot. But engineers need to be able to market themselves. You know, there's a great episode of Spin City. It was an old 90s uh, sitcom, and it's about the mayor of New York, and it's about some bid for waste management, right? It was a mafia story. But they said to the mayor, is, they said to him, how are you going to pick the winning bid? He said, oh, the guy with the coolest logo is clearly going to win this bid. <laughs> now, that was a joke, but it matters how you present to people your logo, your image, your email signature, your design aesthetic around that, how your documents or your business got that all leaves an image on people, right? Well, here's why it matters. And you're absolutely right. By the way, engineers are not the only people or that are not good at marketing or understanding the importance. Yeah. Take just about every single professional services provider, yeah. whether it's an engineer, an accountant, a lawyer, if you're providing professional services, you probably have underinvested in design and marketing. Even if you're a big agency or company that provides these services, you've probably underinvested in those things. Because oftentimes, as a professional services provider, we start working and we get another job and another job. We totally forget about the need to market. We remember only when they dry up and all of a sudden we don't have anything to do. And now we're wondering, well, where are the other jobs coming from? So at the end of the day, here's why it's important. People buy services. So if you're a architect, a construction company, a vendor to the construction industry, you're not selling to corporations. You're selling to a person, an individual that runs procurement, an individual that makes the decision on which company to retain for that particular job. We all have, as humans, cognitive biases. We simply are biased in the way we approach things. So one bias is first impressions. Yeah. When you first meet somebody for the first time, you have an impression of that person even before they utter a word. You look at them based on their body language, based on the way they're dressed, based on how they look at you. Before they open the mouth, you already have a cognitive impression. Now, this happens very quickly. It's not something that you sit there thinking about, I'm going to evaluate this person. It just happens in your brain subconsciously. But beyond that, when they start talking, when they give you things like their business card, when you see their letterhead, when you observe a logo, your brain continues to evaluate the quality of that impression. And one of the interesting things about impressions is, is there's something called the anchoring effect in cognitive psychology? And this is really relevant to marketing. What you hear first tends to be the thing that reinforces throughout. So if you see somebody or you see their business card or you see their sign or a print advertisement and it doesn't look good, you're going to 
measure everything else you see about that business through that same lens. It's not good. If you see something that looks good, high quality, memorable, then you're going to measure the things that you see through a different lens. And so for any service provider, making that good first impression and making sure that it's visually interesting and intellectually interesting is extremely important because you're going to look so much different than 99% of people in the industry who don't do that. Yeah, there was Lisa Ford. I don't know if you know the name Lisa Ford, but she did a lot of coaching, business coaching, particularly as it related to that first moment. She called those moments of truth, that first interaction that you have with a new client. Because you're right. It's, you know, within seconds, they will be judging you. There's so many places we can go with this conversation. I, on a sidebar discussion, you know, I remember when I, uh, I had sold my business in the 2000 to a large Danish company. And, uh, you know, I was too young to retire and, or too stupid to retire. <laughs> In hindsight, maybe that was an intellectual thing. But we started up our website, healthyheating.com. And now, going on 20-some-odd years, I wish I could go back and change that name and our logo. Because it got to a point about eight, nine years in where we were actually, you know, we started out with nothing. And then we all of a sudden had tens of thousands of people flogging to our site but they were there for a very narrow focus. But my career and my input into that website became very broad. And now the logo and the name does not really represent, you know, what we're all about. And I don't know, I'm getting to the point now, I don't know if I should put a bullet in the website. <laughs> you know, because... Yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 here's yeah. the thing. So there's this very common tool that businesses use called the SWOT analysis, yeah. uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And it's a pretty effective tool when it comes to looking at your brand and your brand identity. So let me just define a couple of these words. A brand is, is every touch point you have with your customer. So it includes all of your visual stuff. It includes your communications. It includes how people feel about you. And what's most important is not what you say. It's what people think about your brand. And then brand identity is a visual concept. It's everything visual about your company. So your logo, your website, your business cards. The thing is that culture evolves, companies evolve. And as a result, even successful companies periodically rebrand. Now there are exceptions. Coca-Cola hasn't done a whole lot of rebranding. Part of that is because they invest substantial sums of money to build and promote that brand. Other businesses continue to rebrand for several reasons. One is, to your point, the brand sometimes outgrows its visual identity. So when you start a business, it's a very common mistake to underinvest in good design. Historically, because good design was very expensive. And I get it. I mean, I suffered the same problem as a business owner before I started CrowdSpring. If you have to pay tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars for a new brand identity, for a new website, you might also pause and wonder how can you get it much cheaper. But here's the thing that I think every successful professional services company, every successful engineer, every successful entrepreneur knows. That design is unaffordable. It costs you far more in the end than making a smart investment in good design. Now, you may get to a point as you've got with your business where you're wondering, is my visual identity 
Does it fit my brand? And that's very common. So I encourage people, and we have this phenomenal guide on our blog. I'll share it with you guys so you can add in the short notes in the show notes on brand identity. It's 21,000 words that walks you through every single element of visual identity, including a SWOT analysis. So one thing you can do is try to find this disconnect between what your business is today and how your business is perceived by the people that buy from it, because that happens to be true for a lot of companies. I mean, we've seen Dunkin' Donuts, Uber, even big companies that haven't rebranded in 100 years rebrand in the past couple of years for that reason. So 2021 is interesting too, because we're going through this phenomenal market shift, not just in health, but in the construction industry. And there, it's, there's a big unknown. I mean, you have a lot of companies, especially in the technology space, announcing that they're going to be remote first or remote friendly. And there's this big question, well, how does that impact office space? How does that impact big buildings? How does it impact construction plans for big cities? And so part of the challenge is, as that industry has evolved, as the culture has evolved, people ought to take note and say, maybe it's time for me to appear fresh and relevant with my visual identity. Because if it looks like you did it 10 years ago, if you have a great relationship with a contractor or a building owner doing a new project, maybe it doesn't matter. But most companies don't have a great relationship. They're not going to automatically win every single bid, which means they're going to be talking to a person they probably don't know very well. And that person, like all humans, is going to have cognitive biases, as we talked about earlier. And those biases will force them to make these judgments that will influence how they evaluate your bid. So when you spend all this time answering an RFP, you're doing this for a very specific reason. You're trying to show credibility. You're trying to show knowledge. You're trying to show that you look closely at the RFP and the materials they need. You're trying to suggest, hopefully, out-of-the-box solutions and maybe innovative ways to help have them spend less money deploying certain things. Maybe you're looking at new control systems that haven't been used as much but but are incredibly energy-efficient and user-friendly. All of those things connect to your credibility. Visual identity is equally important. You should be investing time in creating that credibility visually as well. It's the old story, right? Would you take life advice off a hobo? No, why is that? Because he doesn't look like he's successful, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's at the end of the day, that's pretty much it. I mean, it doesn't mean that a hobo can't be successful person, just doesn't love to dress, but we are biased. And so when we see people like that, we tend to reach certain conclusions, right or wrong. And as a professional services provider, you have to acknowledge that there are biases and there are some techniques to get over the hump and try to overcome them. I have a great, there's a couple of things to take away here for our listeners. Right? One, what you have to understand is when you're in the property business and you're in the RFP business, your reward for a job well done and executed brilliantly is more hunger games, right? There's no like, well done, have a bonus. There's no well done, have an extra job. Thanks very much. Let's have your last bid. Good luck, right? So that's the business we're in. So I remember, I'll never forget this. I was on the client side of the table. Someone came in. We had like four presentations in the afternoon, professional services presentations, right, to design the building. Someone came in. It was a pretty good presentation. But at the end, they went, well, by the way, here's a copy of our presentation. And it was a hard-bound, like, book-type copy of the presentation with their pre-qualification, the history of the firm, the key players, and they gave it to each of us and walked out. I'll tell you what, man, that shifted our perception of them, I wanted them to get a job at that point, right? They did in the end, but price was most, was 90% of it, but that elevated their 
bid to the point where we were looking for a reason to give it to them. And that's an important factor because at the end of the day, when it comes to credibility, this is relevant for companies and relevant for individuals. It takes time to build credibility. So you guys have built credibility in the industry over a period of time. You have a popular podcast, among other things. And it wasn't credible on day one simply because you want to do a podcast. It took you time to build an audience, to find guests, and create that credibility. Credibility can be destroyed in an instance. And so this is the challenge with credibility. When you saw that bound book, these were among the many steps this company took to persuade you that they were credible, that they were professional, that they were ready. And and the way that we tend to think humans tend to think, is when we see something positive, like this bound book, they did something different from everybody else. They created a perspective in your mind that wanted you to hand them the job, even though you didn't know them that well. It was just based on what they actually did rather than said, which is really important. That is a really strong indicator of how a business goes to build credibility block by block. Now, a business that comes in with you know, a sloppy proposal or lots of spelling errors, or if they missed half the RFP and only answered half of it, that undermines that credibility very quickly. And, and let me say one thing about branding, which I think is important. You're not going to hear it from most branding agencies. Branding does not solve for bad work. If you're a bad architect, if you're a bad engineer, you're not going to be able to win jobs simply because you have a great logo and a beautiful looking presentation. So all of those things go hand in hand. You still have to be an expert at what you do. You still have to communicate well. You have to present yourself well. You have to do the little things, but it works the other way around too. You could be great at what you do, but if you don't market and don't present yourself, like a lot of architects tend to do, they advocate really well for themselves you will lose out jobs that you should win simply because you did invest in the other part of it, which is creating credibility through good design. Yeah, it's interesting. Someone told me once, and I saw, as I've got older and more mature and more calm, I've come to understand this better. Branding is a promise, right? So well, taking that example I just discussed, they put a presupposition in my head that the promise was everything they do will be as good as this presentation and book they left, right? So then it becomes... That's my benchmark, and I swear where I think they're going to be. So if they don't perform at that level, then obviously the credibility is going down, right? Well, that's right. And so there's actually a chemical reaction in our brains when we see some, a company's logo. And, and there are two things that happen. One of them is exactly what you just said, which is this promise. So two things happen. Number one, we recognize that company's logo, and that creates a chemical reaction in our brain. So I happen to like, Apple products. And I use MacBook Pro. I have a Mac Pro. And so whenever I see an Apple logo, I have a very positive association with that brand simply because of my experience. And that's important. But the second thing is exactly what you said, which is we have this chemical reaction that creates an expectation of what we expect to see from them. Now, that's so important in the construction trade because in your case, when you saw that bound volume, that was an expectation of high quality of professionalism. And so you expect that these guys on the job would take every part of the job as seriously as they took this RFP conversation. And that's a reasonable expectation because of what they did to actually get to this point. And so this chemical reaction, we can't control it. I mean, it just happens. And so this is why good, smart marketers, good, smart professional services people and companies recognize this happens and then make effort to try to create a situation where 
people who are evaluating their proposals have that kind of a reaction. You know, I want this firm on this job because they are standing out from everybody else. Now, you obviously have to, as I said earlier, be good at what you do. You have to communicate well. You have to explain your vision for the job and what you're proposing. But those two things work so closely together that if you don't do it, you don't create that chemical reaction in the person's brain. And then it's neutral. Neutrality may be okay for you, but neutrality makes it really difficult to win business, to win your proposals. Yeah. You know, we retired our practice a couple of years ago, but I guess it was about 10 years ago. We were doing a lot of pro bono work. People would come to our website and and our website led them to believe that we were there to help them out on a pro bono basis. And I remember thinking to myself, you're not going to retire on pro bono work. It's good for the soul and good for the industry. So we changed actually the message on our website and we made it more technical and we brought people coming to the website to understand what our brand was all about. And it demanded a certain level of intellectual capacity, a little bit of science. They needed to have a science background. And then ultimately, we told them what to expect for engineering fees and what the systems that we design, what they should be budgeting for. All of a sudden, the the pro bono work disappeared. Our success ratio on projects went from being like 20% to like more like 85%. And most of our clients were other engineers, but then there was the other 20% that were healthcare workers, physician surgeons, eye doctors. Our clientele changed. And that took maybe a year to get that through our system. And then after that, it was just every time somebody called up, I knew we already had them. Would you say that, Robert, they're self-selected a new client set then? Yeah. And that's what we wanted our website to do that. We wanted to get rid of all of the chaff, the people that were just kicking tires and, you know, we're just going to take our time. And basically what we ended up saying is that we said for free or for fee. That was their two choices. And if you don't want to pay then you go to this part of the website and have a nice day and learn what you can, right? But if you want to have a dialogue and you're going to pay, willing to pay for it, then this is where you go. And so we used our website to divide who's a client and who's just kicking tires. And it worked great. Yeah. So Adam, to answer your question, yes. I mean, ultimately, every business needs to evaluate who its real customers are. And, and the problem is, for especially when you're starting out, for younger professionals, for younger architects, younger engineers, whether they're working independently as a consultant or they have a small firm or working at a firm, any client is a client. And so they feel like anything is helping. And that's to some degree true. I mean, you want to get billable work. You want to create opportunities for yourself. But but we often fall into this trap of doing work for certain clients, which leads us down a path of only working for those kinds of clients. Maybe perfectly fine, but it may not be your highest or best use as an engineer. There may be plenty of things you can contribute if you better define your target market. And and this is actually one of the reasons why companies rebrand. It's one of the reasons why I encourage companies to do a SWOT analysis, which is to look at where are your current weaknesses. So for you guys, it was, you know, a lot of the work was pro bono and you weren't really communicating well with people that needed your services, wanted your services, but it wasn't obvious when they got to your site. And so by changing that messaging, you were able to engage with that very specific audience. And the earlier as a professional services person or as a firm that you do that, that you make that assessment, who is really my target audience? 
where do I want this business to come from? And how do I communicate with them? The better you will be able to grow that business because this is a challenge. So you mentioned these big brands and CrowdSpring at the beginning. We built CrowdSpring for small businesses. We built it for businesses of one to nine employees. We just got lucky in that big brands like Amazon and Philips and LG all wanted to work with us too which is perfectly fine. We're humbled by the fact that we have a platform that they love to do logo design, web design, and such. But we focus on the small business. And so our communications are strictly focused on small businesses and marketers who help small businesses. We don't write articles about enterprise-scale businesses. We don't spend much time talking about big CRM or ERP adoptions, largely because it would confuse our audience and because that's not the business we're talking to. So if you're in the construction industry today, this is something you ought to be thinking about too. Are you talking to the right audience? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So one question I've been swirling around in my mind, I'm sort of pretty aware of marketing because it had a big impact on a few of my last businesses. But today, things are shifting. There's so many marketing channels. There's social media, there's the web, there's radio. There's so many ways to put yourself out there. So if Robert and I were 30 years younger and sort of starting out a new engineering firm, what do you think the relevance is, say, of a website versus social media presence? Where would you direct our resources? So that's an easy question. Website versus social media. Website. Which social media network, and I'll talk about that in a moment, is a different question. Here's why. Your website is your ambassador. It is selling you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. If you don't have a website and you have an account somewhere else on somebody else's site, then you're really not in control of your visual identity and in control of your branding. And so whether you're starting out just building an engineering firm today or you're an engineering firm that only lives on Facebook, invest in a website. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to take a long time. This is one of the things that we do for tens of thousands of clients regularly. Where you market really hasn't changed in the last 50 to 60 years in the sense that you market where your clients and prospects are. The channels have changed, but the place that you go is largely about your clients and prospects. I'll give you a good example. In the construction trade, it's a B2B business business to business. You're not dealing with consumers. And so it's hard to imagine that a young construction firm or established construction firm is going to get much of an audience creating TikTok videos. But let's say that they do. Let's say that they start creating TikTok videos that are funny and engaging and 12 and 13-year-old girls are clicking on them and you have millions of views. So what? At the end of the day, they're not buying construction services. And so it might be good to pat yourself on the back and say, I've got this great following of 12 and 13-year-olds on TikTok, or I've got you know 15,000 people on Instagram that love my videos or love my photos. But if they're not your prospective clients, if they're not your clients, you're not communicating with your audience. So which social network really depends on where are your customers? Where are your clients? If your clients are on Twitter, And you can measure that by looking at some of your existing clients and the people that you're talking to. Do they have a Twitter presence? Are they active on Twitter? What do they talk about on Twitter? Because if they're talking about their puppies and not construction, it's going to be really hard for you to engage with them there. (laughs) If your clients are on other networks, like LinkedIn, it's becoming a much more pronounced conversational network for businesses, then maybe that's where you would invest some of your time. And so some of it is about experiments. 
you know, you don't really know if LinkedIn will work for your business or not, or Twitter. Some of it is about common sense. If there are networks that are primarily videos of 30 seconds in length, people doing funny things, you're not going to get a contract to install HVAC or sell steel to a developer simply because you have a funny TikTok video. It's just unlikely to happen. So invest like you always have in the channels where your target audience lives and spends time. I have this irresistible urge for Robert and I to do a dance video now for some reason. <laughs> well, and that will be fine. And that might be fine. You, you may triple the people that sign up for the podcast, but, but they're probably going to be 13, 14 years old. <laughs> yeah. By the way, age is not unimportant. It's one thing that we haven't talked about, but I no. do want to mention because younger consumers, whether it's in the construction, building trade or otherwise, are much more aware of branding. So people in Gen Z, millennials, are much more aware, much more focused on branding and visual identity, much more aware of social causes. And so if you are a construction firm or firm in the industry dealing with younger clients, those in their mid-20s, 30s, even, even 40s, you should understand that they make choices that are probably a little different from the way that these choices would have been made by people who are now older. They're much more engaged. They're much more aware. You know, on a given day, we all see 3,000 to 10,000 logos. So yeah. we're blinded by this stuff. We're blinded by marketing messages. And so if your target audience is younger, everything I've said is even more important because you're competing against everything else they're seeing, which is high quality. That's interesting. So, yeah, the age thing is interesting because our industry in particular, there's a lot of baby boomers, Robert and I are part of our generation, who are aging out of the business slowly, right? So the millennials, not millennials, Gen X, actually Generation X, I think, behind us, are coming in and they're in the real power positions now, decision-making. But, you know, there is a decision-making, I think, is moving further down now as things are becoming a bit more, as hierarchies are flattening. So you've got Gen X and the people below them and now in the decision-making phase, had the power of decision-making, say, in terms of procurement. They need different messages, right? They do. So Gen X is going to be closer to baby boomer than yeah. millennials in that sense, but they're also more aware. So I'll give you an example. Purpose-driven marketing is becoming much more important now, certainly in the consumer space, but it's also becoming more important in the business space, largely because, again, we don't buy from businesses. We buy from people who make decisions. And those people are consumers, first and foremost. And so last year, because of the pandemic, because of the pressure on businesses, you had a lot of brands do three things. Either stay completely silent, two, ignore what was going on and just continue doing what they were doing, or three, lean into supporting socially conscious causes. And there are plenty of those kinds of causes. And the reason that last group of brands that lean into supporting socially conscious causes is doing so much better. So people are four and a half times more likely to recommend businesses with a person to others as they would be to recommend businesses that don't have a purpose. They're four times more likely to buy from those businesses with a purpose. And so when you talk about Generation X, when you talk about millennials getting into decision-making power, you have to realize this is how they are thinking about buying their next television set, buying their next jacket, buying their next pair of shoes. And they're not going to be thinking differently about 
construction simply because it's a different industry, that bias will start flowing into their decisions. And as younger and younger people get into those roles, they will age, but they will have grown up in a totally different cultural environment. And so their biases will be different. Everything we've been talking about becomes even more important. It's, yeah, actually, I've just realized that one of the business I owned was an M&A design firm. I was a partner in that. And we latched on to the cause of sustainability. Now, it was, we were in that pretty early and rode that wave at the front, and it really propelled our business. If you wanted a business as usual building, we weren't your people. If you wanted something green or high performance, we were your people, right? And that was purpose-driven marketing. We marketed the hell out of that. And it's a big trend. At the end of the beginning of every year, we cover trends in product design, in packaging design, in, in logo design, website design. And, and so sustainability in product design and packaging design, and, and we've written quite a bit about the construction industry too, sustainability is critically important because people are conscious about it. So one of the things in 2020 that we all fixated on, obviously, was the pandemic. Uh, but the other thing that we fixated on was the climate you know, the way that environment was impacted by people slowing down. So when we were sheltering, everything improved. And when everything improved, it was more breathable. And it was important because the pandemic affected our ability to breathe. I mean, if you get infected, it affects your breathing. And so clean air was really helpful to understand how could you reduce the incidence of infections and such. Now, when people started thinking about those things, they naturally started thinking about how do we make everything else more sustainable, more environmentally friendly? And so there were more conversations about that. And that's why you could expect this year that sustainability will have a much bigger presence in construction projects, both because consumers, people that are renting, are asking those kinds of questions. The people that are building are asking those questions because they're challenges. And we've got other things like power problems in Texas that are creating you know, problems for millions of people where people are forced to try to heat using conventional systems where sustainable buildings might not need that level of power to be able to do so much better, more efficiently at a lower cost. So sustainability has been a trend for a while and continues to intensify. It's got to a point where some of the words, the buzzwords that we use have no meaning anymore, like green, for example, right? And it seems like we find a word, we latch on to the word, and we extract whatever we can out of it till it has no meaning anymore. Where are we at with words like green and sustainability? And, you know, because ultimately, and we've talked about this with some of our clients, ultimately all this stuff, all these building programs, we had Jerry Udelison on once. He was How many building programs was, did he say, Adam? Over 600 green certification programs in the world. That was two years ago. It's insane. You get paralysis through analysis, right? Anyways, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the words we use and the loss of their meaning or... I don't know, the bastardization of it, because at some point there's no depth to it. So I have a pet peeve with those kinds of words, Robert. I mean, I think it's true in every industry you have. My wife is a teacher. And, and when I read some of the things that they write about, about stakeholders and all these other words, is those words have no meaning either. So part of the challenge, and this is a good lesson for the construction industry, but it's really true across every industry. Remember what I said earlier, your brand isn't what you say it is. Yeah. It's what people think it is. Now, here's why that's important. Saying that you are green, saying that you follow sustainability practices may be true or not true. But what's relevant is what people actually perceive. And so simply having a certification 
doesn't actually lead people to believe that you're doing things that are relevant to them from a sustainability perspective. Now, what does it take to create that consistent impression in the mind of your target audience about your practice? It's not so much the words that you use, but repetition and consistency. So one example is the way Apple talks about their sustainable practices when they release new products. Apple has never been a firm that focuses on features, in large part because they recognized early on that you can't talk about chips in the context of megahertz and second-level cash and all these other things because consumers don't understand any of those things. Yes, there's some engineers that will love that conversation and understand that conversation, but 99% of people buying Apple products have no idea what any of that is about. So instead, they choose to focus on storytelling, telling stories about their products. And one of the stories they've been telling consistently over a decade or more is their sustainability practices. So yes, they use those terms. And you're right. These terms are often abused and misused. But every single presentation when they release a new product includes a segment on what they're doing to promote sustainability, what they're doing to promote recyclability, what they're doing to promote use of greener technologies and materials, what they're doing to reduce materials. And when you hear that over and over again, if you're a consumer that tends to favor sustainable practices and you have a choice between a company that clearly has with every product articulated what it's doing and one that doesn't talk about it, you're going to make a choice to buy from the company that does. So part of the lesson in the construction industry is you can't just say that you follow green practices and that you follow sustainable practices. You have to consistently show it. Every building that you're building, every construction trade which is following these practices, you have to illustrate it to people, not focusing on the little details, but focusing on the overall approach. Because a lot of us get stuck in the weeds when we try to present this stuff, assuming that the more we talk about it, the more people will think we're following green practices and sustainability. But again, you have to consistently do more than say and obviously explain what you're doing in order for people to perceive that you're following the practices that they value. Social proof really matters. Significantly. I mean, this is what today marketing is about is because people trust other people more than they trust brands. And it's the same way in every industry. Listen, if you are sending out RFPs for construction and a friend of yours knows one of the construction contractors, subcontractors, and recommends them, you're going to have a bias if you trust your friend you're going to ultimately rely on their recommendation much more so. It's like the bound book that you saw. You're going to look for opportunities to hire that contractor, assuming everything else is good. We trust other people, particularly when we're purchasing things like toasters and televisions. Obviously, it's a little different when you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars you know, on a building. But those same principles still are relevant. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. You know, I got to a point where you read so many books. You know, if I go back 20 years or 25, even 30 years, and I think about Tom Peters or 
you know, in the marketing world, Al Trout and Jack Reese, I think it was, or Jack Trout and Al Reese, I can't remember. They wrote a number of really good books, but basically storytelling and, and the power of your brand. And when I think about the content that came out that long ago, and it's still, of course, true today, but there's a great example. And Amory Lovins wrote a book called Natural Capitalism. And if you've not read it, you should. It's a classic. And there's a guy, you know, who started out, uh, maybe you've heard of the Rocky Mountain Institute. I don't know if that rings a bell to you at all at all. But yeah, so, you know, there's a big think tank that exists in the United States. Well, Amory, when he wrote that book, it was all about making money from the natural elements. And part of it was, you know, the strategies and the tactics that he used. But back then, that was earth-breaking stuff. But here we are on a continuum, and we're talking about it today. And I ultimately, Ross, what you're talking about, these are principle-based concepts. They're not concepts. They're just principles. Stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, listen, as humans, we have not changed how we relate to communication and storytelling. Storytelling is really important whether it's marketing or not. First of all, when we're kids, we read stories or our parents read stories to us and they're interesting. And those people that grow up to read a lot continue to read and are invested in these stories, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And then marketing, of course, the most effective marketing tells stories. So part of the frustration marketers have with marketing is, is marketing is not nearly as powerful today as it used to be. If you're a copywriter, you're not studying copywriting from 2020. You're studying copywriting from the 70s, from the 60s, because that's when marketers were really honing in those you know, beautiful copy in, in some of these publications. Because that was the way that you could tell your story. It was mostly print. It wasn't visual. And in print, you had to capture attention. And so every word became really, really important. But storytelling continues to be important. It's why video is eating the world right now, why YouTube is so powerful, why TikTok and other video platforms are so dominant across different industries. So none of that has changed. It's still important to tell stories. And in a sense, whether you're a 13 year old girl, starting a TikTok channel for makeup, or you're an engineering firm in the construction industry, storytelling is important. You're just talking to a different audience. And if you simply slap a logo that's used by thousands of other firms and say, that's good enough, I'll get a templated generic website that thousands of other businesses have, you're not differentiating yourself. You're not telling a story. So part of what I think a lot of people and firms across every industry miss is brand strategy. So they're ad hoc doing a few things, but they don't actually sit down and say, what's my mission statement? What are my values? What are the strengths and opportunities? And who is my target audience? And sometimes, Robert, in your case, takes you some time to figure it out, and it takes you time to pivot. So in your case, it was a year to get to your target audience, but talk about the value of that pivot and making that realization, right? And then the other thing that I think a lot of companies don't do, and this is really important, you know, this is before you get to, is my name, is my business name right? Is the logo good? Do I need to rebrand my website? They don't know their unique selling proposition. What's your special sauce? What is it that you bring that nobody else can? Because let's face it, any given construction project, most of the contractors and subcontractors bidding can do the work. Yeah. And can do the work competently and probably have references that show they can do the work competently. So how does a person pick the one that's going to get the job? 
And it's got to be something special about that business. Now, in Adam's case, the example he talked about earlier was somebody did something in the presentation that stood out from everybody else. And maybe part of their unique selling proposition is they are professional at every touch point, every phone call, every email, every presentation. It looks highly professional and like they've invested a ton of time just for that. Whereas most other people say, you know what? I'm going to talk to this potential client a hundred times. I can't possibly maintain that level of intensity a hundred times. That firm said, I'm going to talk to this potential client a hundred times and I'm going to maintain that level of intensity. We see it. And so that's the big difference. So strategy is really important. You can't just create a brand identity and a strong brand if you don't invest some time to think about it, if you don't invest a small amount of money to create something visually interesting it's going to be ad hoc. And and here's the thing about brand that's really important. I think most people really don't realize. You have a brand as a company, as an individual, whether you intend to have one or not. Yeah. People think about you, whether you take the time to think about yourself and project an image. It's just that those companies and people that take no time to create a visual brand identity don't control their fate. What people think about them is driven by totally random acts. If you build a strategy and build a strong visual identity, then you have a say about how people view your business. And if you have a say about how people view your business, you've got the ability to change. You've got the ability to target a different audience. You have the ability to persuade people to hire you or to give you jobs. Yeah, we have a saying, in the absence of information, people will make their own shit up. So. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And it works in the consumer space and in the business space. This is, sure I mean, look, in the medical fields, which are complicated, if doctors don't say something about a drug, people will just make stuff up. And so it's just human nature. And this is the problem. You're dealing with humans at the end of the day. And that's probably the most important thing is when you're dealing with high value construction projects, you think, hey, this is different because 13-year-old girls aren't buying my products. I'm, I'm selling to you know, 55, 60-year-olds, people that have accomplished that are spending $500 million to build a building. Yeah. You're dealing with humans. Humans have biases. And so, yes, your audience is different, but it doesn't mean they think differently about the important things that could create credibility for you. It's interesting because there's a lot of dots being joined here. You know, like what you're talking about, take Apple as an example. Their messaging and storytelling is so good, it's developed into a culture of excellence, right? An expectation and a culture of excellence. Their shops are a great experience. The products are a great experience. The unboxing is a great experience, right? So, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't apply that same principle to building a building or designing a building. And you have architects, I mean, world-renowned architects that do that. They tell a great story, they design great buildings. And yes, architects are really good promoters. But part of the reason some of them stand out is they're telling stories that are then retold by others. And the reason you don't have these kinds of figures in the engineering trade in most industries is there are not that many people that are telling stories. Now, engineers can tell good stories. Some cannot, some can, just like every other profession. But most choose not to. And that's the deficiency. If you don't tell your own story, then either nobody will tell the story or the story they tell isn't going to be the one you want people to tell. Hit them out of the head. This is why we do this podcast because they ain't telling these stories. We want to tell these stories and get them out there, right? Because yeah, absolutely doing it. But the other interesting thing to Robert's point, you know, you're talking about the copywriting and back in the 60s and 70s had to be on point because, right? The other thing that's going on, I think, 
And the reason there's a lot more chaos and distrust and fatigue with certain words is in today's world of social media, it's very easy to find out someone's bullshit, right? Yeah. You know, you know, the guy does this great sustainability story and jumps in an F-150 truck and drives home and someone films that. There's a disconnect there, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you cannot be a sustainability dude if you're driving a Ram truck. I'm just sorry. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, you know, it works the same way if you're coming to pitch a construction project that's, you know, you're doing for a nonprofit, for example, and, and they're trying to conserve money and you pull up in a Lamborghini. You know, that's not going to be the exact right fit with that image they're looking right. for. So it's all of these touch points. And part of that is just thinking through your strategy. And that's why companies like Apple are so good at it, because they don't just do it one time and then presume that people are going to remember Every product release, they talk about it. They invest time and they show people what they're doing. And they report back on what they've done in the past and how they impacted the environment through those past actions. So that means for somebody in the construction trade, you've got to think about what you drive. You've got to think about what you wear. Much the same way that you've got to think about the proper sustainability practices on a construction project, the materials that you pick and how you're going to heat and cool the building. And because they relate to everything else, the image that people have about you. And, and again, cognitive bias forces people to make judgments. And so if there's a disconnect, if there's a disconnect between what you say and what you do, people aren't going to trust you. If you're bullshitting today, people will find out. This is why politicians are in so much trouble now. Because in the past, there were like three news media channels and it was all controlled. Now everyone's a citizen journalist and they're getting caught out on their bullshit. And they yep. don't know how to deal with it. But that happens in all professions, in all businesses, right? You get out there and tell a great story. You need to follow through or you will be found out and called out. That is that, the key difference, I say. Yeah. Today. Well, you know, and you've got to keep telling that story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you because we're in COVID time, you know, if you look at the story of New Zealand, yeah. right, compare it to the story, well, you can take Canada or the United States, nowhere near the same story, right? At the very beginning, they were consistent, you know, everybody was on board and that person told, you know, the leadership story and somebody else heard the leadership story and it just went through their country. Here in our part of the world, <laughs> We did not have leadership that took charge. And as a result, everybody became their own leader, making their own decisions, making up their own stories. And of course, they told 10 friends, and then it was 100 friends, and then it was 1,000 friends. And now you've got an entire nation with 380 million, Canada and the United States, 380 million people. No one knows what the story is. That's not the case in New Zealand. Well, and that's that's a good point, Robert, and actually is a good lesson for companies because yeah. storytelling is important for your target audience and for the media and for investors, if you have investors, but it is also important for your team. Your team needs to understand and follow that story because if you're not telling a sustainability story to your team and you're not really communicating one to your clients, then your engineers aren't following sustainable practices. That's not first and foremost on their mind, which makes it really difficult for you to communicate in your bids that this is what you're doing. If you're telling a consistent story to your team, to your target market, and you're showing examples, then the team is looking for that. So one reason why companies like Apple are able to efficiently and effectively continue and strengthen their sustainable practices is by telling the story, they're also 
communicating to their team, we value sustainability. When you look at materials design, when you pick products, we want you to focus on picking products that are sustainable, that are recyclable, that use recyclable materials. We're going to reward that in multiple different ways. So part of storytelling for the construction industry is is also getting your team buy-in and consistently making sure they understand that what you're setting out as your values and your vision on these projects is also shared by your team. Absolutely right. That is spot on. Yeah. You know, in many, I mean, the, the word story and storytelling is tied so much to culture. Yeah. You know, and the culture that you're building ultimately becomes your story. And it's not a chicken or egg thing. It's that the two of them mature together as you evolve it. But you can't start unless you, who was it um, keeping the end in mind? Who who was the author um, of that? Begin with the end in mind. Who said that? I love that. Because no, that's the commissioning tagline for me, right? Begin your yes. design with the end in mind, how I'm going to test it. <laughs> right. And so many ways when yeah. you're starting a company, you know, having that vision uh, for what the company is going to become to some degree, you have to have, and that's really where, where the visionary comes from, from leadership, right? Where we need to be. And that, of course, then drives your story and your culture and everything about your company. Yeah, the, the way I think about it, I think about it in those same terms, having that long-term vision. I just work a little backwards. So the way I encourage my team and the way I think about it is, imagine that you've achieved that goal, mm. okay? Don't think about what the goal is. Imagine that you've achieved that goal, whether it's 10 years from now or five years from now. What would needed to have happened for you to get there? And then work backwards and figure out what needed to, how you needed to be lucky, what you needed to do, the connections you needed to make, the jobs that you had to win, the proposals you had to submit. Because when you do that, you really force yourself to understand that effort involved. Simply aspiring to a goal doesn't walk you mentally through that process of getting there. But saying 10 years from now, I want to have... $50 $50 million in annual revenue. Something needed to have happened for you to get there. You need to understand it's a professional services corporation, which means that there's a metric for revenue per biller. So you need to have a certain number of engineers and architects on staff that are going to be billing out to clients. And that number is defined. You could assume you're going to have the number one spot in the world in terms of revenue per biller, but that's known roughly. So let's say it's $250,000 per biller. Well, you know exactly how many people you're going to have to employ. What are you going to have to do to employ that many people? What support staff will you need? Those questions are answerable. And, and if you think strategically, you can get there. But it does require you to think about it and start that from the very beginning. Entrepreneurs who understand that early on when they're just starting the business are able to overcome much more friction, and many more opportunities for failure. Entrepreneurs that don't understand that early on will often fail at a healthier rate than those people that do. Yeah. I love that whole concept. And I yeah. I took a couple uh, moments of time in my career. I went back and, and took some stuff at the Haskane School of Business in the University of Calgary. And that was our professor's mantra. And, you know, when they were teaching us about business planning and developing missions and or visions and then these missions and strategies and tactics. And basically he said exactly what you just said. And that is, is that you need to believe in what you want to become, you know, like make that statement. And then everything that you do from there on in has to support that. And it was incredibly powerful. And in fact, 
that ultimately is the strategy that we used to grow our business that we ultimately sold in whenever it was 2000. So, yeah, you know, for our listeners, <laughs> right. I mean, but yeah, sure. You know, but for our listeners, learning these methods of growing a business and then executing on those strategies and the tactics and getting right down into the minutia, you know, and understanding the difference between the two. The strategy is not a tactic and a tactic is not a strategy. I was always taught that, you know, there isn't a mission, that the mission support your vision. And so it's an accumulation. And each of those, it's like a military exercise. The hierarchy, right? The hierarchy. Yeah, right. So, you know, for our listeners, this moment here in our discussion with Ross is like, I don't know, this is one of the most important things for them to pay attention to. Yeah. I mean, it's not just enough to have your engineering degree and your nice shiny new laptop. You've got to be thinking strategically. You've got to be thinking about your brand, your business, where you want to be, where you are, how you're going to get there, right? There's all these things to take in, the soft skills, the soft side of business. Right. And it's okay if you're not the person capable of figuring out the marketing strategy. I mean, if you're starting a new business and you're a marketer, but you want to work in the construction industry, you're going to find an engineer to partner with who knows that industry very well. And so if you're an engineer starting a new business and marketing isn't your specialty or you just don't feel like you can invest time in that field, then find somebody that understands that. Find a small agency or a freelancer who really understands strategy and then leverage companies like CrowdSpring for inexpensive, high-quality design to create that brand. Because the problem is simply saying, I don't have time or I'm not an expert, puts you in the 99% of the companies that struggle for years to build a strong brand identity. The competitors that are making those choices in the very beginning and solving that problems are the ones that's standing out. And over the years, whether it's the construction industry, in the consumer space, in video, brands that invest in good, high-quality visual design stand out. Absolutely. So there are some engineers in our business who are what I would call intellectual snobs, right? Their basic brand proposition is, I'm fucking awesome. I do great work. Therefore, work will arrive on my desk by magic every morning. And but 80% of them, it pretty much works that way. But I think the world is moving away from that. The world is moving towards social proof. Tell me about your last job. You better tell a good story about your last job as well, right? And even if you don't want to do that, as you say, you need to be aware of it and have someone in your business who can. So I'm reading a good book right now called Grit. It's about this question of talent versus perseverance. And across different industries, what is proving to be true is that talent is important, but the people who are talented tend to reach a peak level of performance only through perseverance and grit. And so you're right. In a sense, each of us who sets a goal has to think about ourselves. I'm fucking awesome. Okay, I am the best at what I want to do because imposter syndrome is prevalent to beat. It's everywhere. And and younger people, you know, I've got kids that are starting jobs right now. and, And I see people, you know, millennials, Gen Z who are starting jobs. They feel the imposter syndrome all the time. And they're having conversations about they're agonizing over it. It's perfectly natural. I mean, all of us at some point in our career felt that like we were not good. The thing is, the only way you get better is if you feel like you're great at what you do. Because if you don't start with the notion that you are great at what you do, 
you're never going to be great. You're never going to reach that pinnacle. So as a first year attorney, I assumed I was really, really good at what I do. I didn't know anything. I didn't know inside a courtroom, but by assuming I was good at what I do, I worked hard to get there. If I ignored it completely, maybe I would have gotten there, maybe not, but it's that perseverance that helps you get there. So if you're an engineer who gets jobs simply because you think you're great and you in fact are phenomenal, that's great. You don't have to invest much time in marketing, but there are very few engineers like that. Most engineers think they're great, but clients aren't lining up outside the door to give you project after project. You have to invest some time in showing why you're great. If you believe you're good and you don't need to do any marketing, you're really, you're setting up for a sideswipe because somebody will come along and they will take that business away from you, hands down, right? So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It happens in industry after industry. It happens for many different reasons. But part of it is, is you can't, I mean, listen, athletes experience this all the time as they start getting older, younger athletes start beating them, even people that they would beat. And, and it happens in every single trade. You may be winning bid after bid after bid after bid, but at some point, some younger upstart who is actually executing much better than you are, gains the trust of potential clients, and now you're losing bit after bit after bit. So this is why I find this book, Grit, pretty interesting because it shows the importance of really persevering and focusing and working and practicing. It's, you know, we see people in the Olympic Games win 100-yard dashes or win butterfly races, and we think, well, they're gifted athletes. And then when you delve into the story, I mean, this person trains six, seven hours a day, and they've done this for years, you realize what it takes to get to a level of competence that is so much better than everybody else. And and it's the same in business. To get there, you have to invest time to practice and to persevere through a lot of failure, but you also have to create a strategy that helps you get there. You can't just hope to succeed ad hoc. Yes, people get lucky, but more people get lucky because they are prepared for success when luck strikes them. Well, I'm glad you spoke about imposter syndrome because I think that is everywhere and it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're aware of it and you know you can overcome it, right? It can be overcome and it might even provide a bit of humility to make you sort of bear down into the grit phase a bit better, you know, but it's a real important thing. I think it is. You see you successful, you admire suffer from imposter syndrome, in my opinion. I agree. I think it's common. Most successful people suffer from it. The youngest people suffer from it. It's common. It's healthy. It's good for us to wonder, but it's also good for us to... One way to think about it is if you're doing something unique, if you're in the construction business trying to move the industry in a different direction, you've created a new control system, a new environmental system for a building that hasn't been done before. It's natural to have imposter system because it hasn't been done before. But the thing is, that's how innovation happens. You try something new that's innovative and different. And by aspiring to do something that nobody else has done, you're in fact blazing a new trail. And it's healthy to have imposter system, but it's also healthy to say nobody has done this. Everybody is an imposter who would ever try to do it. I'm the one focusing on this and I believe I can do it. But it just shows how as humans, we all have these biases and they influence how we think. And they could influence us in a negative way. If you're overcome by imposter syndrome, you may have a hard time bidding on construction projects over a certain value because you just don't think you can handle it as an engineer. You don't have enough experience. And yet, if you trust yourself, you feel like you're ready, that's not going to be a constraint for you. And that separates people that do really well 
in engineering field and in other fields from those that just stand back and never grow their business, never grow their individual capability and experience and knowledge. Yeah, because it's personal brand and company brand, and they that can really go together really well, right? If that works right. It could go together very well. And by the way, we haven't talked about it, but it's also important. Your personal brand in a professional services industry is important. So a lot of people that work for a company just ignore their personal brand and really aspire to the brand of the company. And that's okay if you're going to work for that company for 40 years. But ultimately, your value as an individual is sometimes equal to the value of the company. When I was an attorney, people knew my law firm less than they knew me, in part because they didn't know law firms. They knew individuals that talked to them. And so when I went out to talk to a prospective client, I was the one making the impression. Now, the law firm had a brand. It had a certain credibility. And so for certain clients, it was really important. But as an individual, I had to create that brand myself for myself and create that credibility. So if you're working for a construction firm, work on your personal brand too. And it is about credibility. It's about how you dress. It's about you know how your business cards look. It's about, to your example earlier, if you're an engineer that's passionate about sustainability practices, drying, driving a gas guzzler, there's going to be a disconnect between what you're doing and what the clients are going to be able to see. If your prospective clients are on LinkedIn, then engage with them through your personal brand on LinkedIn. Talk about issues that are relevant to the construction industry because First of all, that gives you the opportunity if you wanted to, to move laterally to another firm because you've built a brand that now can stand on its own. It also gives you the opportunity to launch your own business. I mean, if you've built a strong enough personal brand and now you have credibility of clients that equals or exceeds the company that you work for, this is a good example where you can become an entrepreneur and work for yourself and build the business that your company isn't able to build for whatever reason. And so both are really important. That's why I used to create partners in my business because it was the only way I could stop them going and starting their firm, right? You make them a partner, all they go. It's very simple. Sure. Yeah. So, Adam, we're... We get into these interviews and we know they can go for like days. (laughs) This, I have made tons of notes in. Yeah, me too. I'm out of paper. That's why I said, I was looking at the clock and I'm going, either I need more paper or we're going to have to get Ross back. And... uh, you know, when Ross, Adam and I have talked before that, you know, we really need to do a soft skill interview and that may be with one or more individuals. And, uh, you know, so if you're interested, I think it would be worth having you on again, for sure. We have some questions for you. We always do some last minute questions, sort of rapid fires type stuff. And I have a burning question and that is, is you know, you're addressing the next generation of kids that are in say, an engineering faculty and you know you're up there talking about brands their personal brand what do you say to somebody who's in their second or their last year of school and is it any different than what you would say if you were addressing this someone that's in their second year of school i don't think it's very different what year in school you are i think the challenge today that the kids are facing and the young adults are facing is social media has opened up the world in a significant way and you know, listen, kids' brains are not developed until they're early to mid-20s. It's a little earlier for boys, a little later for girls. And so as teenagers, kids tend to do stupid things. We all did stupid things. But the stupid thing we did when nobody was watching 
when we were young is different than the stupid things that teenagers can do today by posting stuff on Twitter and TikTok and, and Dispo and every other social network. And so part of the challenge, whether you're first year in school or second year school, and, and I would go back to even elementary and high school, is think about your credibility as an individual. So think about the way that you communicate. It doesn't mean you don't have jokes or funny videos, but the earlier the kids recognize that what we do externally is going to impact how people perceive us, not just our friends, but other people, the better people will position themselves to do things that are meaningful. And it's about thinking a little bit strategically as a younger person to say, you know, I don't care if my image as a 14-year-old is the same as my image as a 30-year-old, but what I don't want to do between 14 and 30 is undermine my credibility. And so there are things that I'll do that are fun and exciting and the teenagers do, but I'm not going to publish everything on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube because I'm going to be embarrassed about it later and it'll impact my credibility. So that first year person in school, second year person in school, there are two things they should be thinking about. Number one, have I done anything? <laughs> that undermines my credibility, especially in in this space? And number two, regardless of the answer, what's my strategy to build some credibility in the space that I'm in? So you don't have to be an engineer at work for 10 years to start building credibility in the engineering space. Ultimately, you're going to want to intern somewhere. You're going to want to get a job as an engineer when you graduate. And so how do you put yourself ahead of other people that are getting and applying for these jobs. One way is to engage with the companies, engage with the people from these companies. Where are they talking? Are there conversations in a Facebook group? Are there conversations in a LinkedIn group? Is there a mail list that people are part of that you can subscribe to? Are there conferences that you can volunteer at and then meet people and network? So these are all things that help. And if you're really good, for example, at marketing and you have a construction firm that you'd love to work for, one good way to do it if you're a first and second year is reach out and say, listen, I'm not an engineer yet, but Can I help you with building a better website or creating better marketing materials? I'm passionate about the industry. I love the industry. And while I can't help you as an engineer now, I can help you with this. That creates a connection. So whether you're first or second year, you should be thinking, I just think back to when I was an attorney and I try to do these things. When I was interning in law firms during law school, I wasn't thinking about the firm. I picked out individuals at the firm, individual attorneys who I wanted to work with because I knew I needed mentoring. I graduated law school without any practical experience. You know, the equivalent of an engineer not being able to thread a bolt and a nut. And so I needed mentors. I needed people that could help me. And and so I focused on finding the right people rather than the right firms. And that's what I think any young person in the industry should be doing is who are the people that are going to help them grow and become successful? Not necessarily which companies, because the bigger the company, the less likely the company is going to help you. Within that company, your future is going to be set by your manager and their manager, and your ability to advance. And those are the people you should be focusing on. And that's good, I, that's good advice, actually. It is great advice. And I get, I get, because we, our audience, I'm going to give a great example of that. There's a young engineer out in uh, Maritimes, Canada. Aaron Smith is his name. I first met him probably 15, 18 years ago as a young graduate. But he came out to a lecture I was giving, got involved in the organization that we're in, was persistent. Always showed up, always did the same thing. Every time you met the guy, he was sharp, he was courteous, he was a professional through and through. And then here last week, I read an article, he was a senior engineer on an award-winning architectural project. It's the success formula. 
You know? It is, totally. Yeah, and I love that kind of stuff. And I was going to ask you a question, but you answered it because I was going to ask you about um, using social media. What's the most effective use of social media? But you really nailed it in that answer in terms of like forming relationships, build your brand, you know, go where your clients are. You know, for engineers, you know, as you say, TikTok might not be the most appropriate brand, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's also, there's a principle of cognitive bias called reciprocity. So this is an important principle that I think is true for any trade, professional services in particular, whether you're a real estate agent, engineer, or a lawyer. And it's this, when you do something good for somebody else, when you help them, they feel an obligation to help you. Now, the help you give them doesn't have to be in their industry. So if you have potential clients and their kids are going to college and you have connections at certain colleges where you can offer to introduce them so they can better understand the, the intricacies of that college and whether it makes sense for them. You know, that's something you can do long before you ask this client, hey, I'd love to bid on your next job. And so part of it is around looking for natural opportunities to help people as you're engaging with them. It isn't just to talk about construction. You certainly don't want to talk about your job and your business 100% of the time because nobody wants to be on a social network talking about business. Maybe 10% of the time, maybe 5% of the time, talk about business. But the rest of the time, engage with people on a human level. Look for ways to help them before you ask them for something. It's a great way to connect. But fundamentally and most importantly, be where your target audience is. Too many people, you know, we have these consultants that say to every professional service person, you have to be on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and YouTube. And, and the question I always ask is, well, are your customers there? Are your clients there? Because if they're not, Why do you want to spend your time? It's like going to a conference that nobody else attends for networking. You're not going to network if you're the only person there. And that's what happens with too many people on the wrong social network. So find your competitors, find the other businesses in your space. Where are they? What networks are they on? And are they actually engaging with potential customers? If they are, that's a great sign that maybe it's a good network for you to try. If they're not there, it doesn't mean it's terrible, but it's a strong signal that maybe customers in your industry aren't going to be watching funny TikTok videos when they're thinking about sustainable $250 million construction projects. That is really good advice. Yeah, I'm pretty sure none of my clients are on TikTok. In fact, I'm 99.99% sure of that. So (laughs) that is great. Reminds me of some advice my dad used to say when we go out and there'd be somebody out in the middle of the lake ice fishing. He says, there's only two reasons why he's there. He's either hiding from his wife or there's actually fish there. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Ross, listen, thanks very much for coming on. I really enjoyed this talk because there are so many dots to connect here for people. There's actionable yeah, advice totally. all through this interview. So that was awesome. That was real value add. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, I enjoyed the conversation, Robert and Adam. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. 
It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, and it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. Adam, you know, the whole time that I'm listening to Ross and I'm thinking about my own fortunes and being fortunate. And when I say fortunes, I'm talking about just the ability to be able to connect with people within the industry and make a difference. To me, that's a fortune. That's, it's invaluable. And, and I'm thinking about all these books I read, Altro, Jack Reese, and, you know, because they were all about branding and Michael Gerber about, you know, recognizing what you don't know and hiring people for those positions. And Tom Peters and all these great business books that I read and applied to my own, my own businesses. And then what I learned in university and making that machine run, but in a structured format, that's what he was talking about, you know, and it's powerful stuff. Like, both you and I know, like our, the people that are listening to this, these, you know, for anybody that's in school or you're trying to think about, you know, how to do this and what you to do, this hour and a half that we talked with Ross is really the DNA of it all, isn't it? That was a masterclass in marketing, actually. There's, a, there's an argument for having a small course on every engineering degree about this because he spoke about personal branding, networking, marketing, the importance of communication, you know, iconography, anchoring, all these things that for me, Four years in, I can now understand, but yeah, when I was young, right. no idea about any of that. <laughs> yeah. This, you can't afford bad design. No, I love that. There were so many money shots there. Website is your ambassador. You can't afford bad design. Yeah, right. It's yeah. unaffordable. I love that. <laughs> he really, I mean, I bet he could do an entire lecture on credibility. You know, oh, and God, the power yeah. of credibility for sure, because that obviously that came up a couple of times and about building up your credibility, but then there's a risk, a credibility risk, and it yes. can be blown in seconds, you know. Yeah. You say the wrong thing. It's like that actress here that was pulled off of the of Disney Plus. Yeah. Yeah. You Just know? her career over in an instant. Just right? like that, you know, and the comments that people say, and uh, you know, you just man, <laughs> Do you know, the other thing I picked up on, and I realized we were doing this at Cobalt Engineering, but I didn't call it that, purpose-driven marketing. Mm. So we, Cobalt Engineering was never any design firm. It was bought by Integral Group, and they still run with this marketing now. But their philosophy, their theme, their purpose is 
green buildings, sustainable buildings, you know, what's the most efficient building we can deliver within the constraints of the project, right? That's something we marketed on a lot. You know, we didn't want the the cookie cutter stuff. We wanted the hard stuff. And when I look back on it, it was purpose-driven marketing and it worked and it grew our business, it grew our brand. And, you know, Egg Table Groups this very day trade on that. They really trade on now how many net zero buildings they've done. They, I think they were involved in the new ASHRAE headquarters. It does work, but you've got to follow through. That's the other thing you were very clear on, right? Totally. I mean, you asked them a couple of times and you answered them, you know, in terms of like the best places to be, social media, the website. And that came up a couple of times. And like he said, you have to be where your customers are. And it's no different than Gretzky. You know, if you want, you got to be right to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And that's a cliche, but it's true. And you have to keep your eye on, on the pun, uh, the puck, the, you know, and the world of getting your brand out there and building your brand and where you build that brand is important. And you can start it young, make the connections, make the, you know, yeah. Cool. yeah. There's so that's many cool. tips out there. If you just took three or four of them, you'd be doing great. You know? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's why I thought like when, you know, if you're sitting with a guy like Ross and you've got, you know, his skills and his knowledge and his capacity is huge, you you know, you get in front of a bunch of kids that are whatever age or whatever year they're in in university or college and understand if you can just listen, you're building your brand now and you have control over it now. You know, don't let your, don't wander and then become a victim of circumstance. Like, you are in control now. You have the opportunity. Start today. You know? He also mentioned something that I tell my kids. I've told all my kids ever since they've been on social media, everything you put on there is there forever. There's a picture of you throwing up over a wall. That will come back and haunt you 20 years later when you're up for promotion. Do not have that picture on. That's be right. aware of what you're doing, right? That's There's right. nothing wrong with being on it, but be on it with purpose and don't do silly things on it, right? Because it will come back. Yeah. You know, everyone in public life now, what do they do? Opposition research, do they just draw all their old tweets, all their old Facebook posts, right? People are getting cancelled for stuff they did 20 years ago and no one really cared. It's nuts. So you've got to be careful of that because in professional life, that will come back at you. Yeah, totally. Nice, man. Find the right people, not the company. Yes. People leave people, not firms. Yeah, that's right there. Everybody listen to that because... (laughs) When we've, over our career, like Adam, you and I probably have close to, I don't know, 80 some odd years of experience. (laughs) You know, we don't want to admit that. But when you think about good people that have left companies, they didn't leave the company. They left the person that they had to deal with, work with, report to, whatever. And that's really important. And then so in the same breath, you know, like he said, like if you're looking for mentors, don't, you know, maybe the big highfalutin brand name company, you know, is looking pretty good to you to go get a job, but you're not looking for a job. You're looking for a mentor. Yeah. You're also it's really looking, important to understand that. Yeah. You're looking for a brand that aligns with, that aligns with your brand, right? Right. You know, it's no good going to work for the Ford F1 factory. If you're really passionate about environmentalism, it's not going to work. No matter how much they're paying you, you're going to feel a disconnect there, right? It's going to become uncomfortable at some point. You're going to leave. But I want to circle back on something you brought up. Should I quote, should I put a bullet in my website's head? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where is it? Here, right, right there behind me, right yeah, there. Healthy <laughs> so yeah, I've always thought 
there's two things going on. Your website's valuable because it's got a lot of accumulated stuff, but it does need a refresh. So my answer is you should rebrand it as, I don't know, um, Robert Bean, IAQ University. You know, Robert Bean, the lecturer you wish you had at school. <laughs> Something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. your thing is designed for not just temperature with a the thermostat and the wall, which you know, that measures convection 30%, right? Yeah, yeah. But designed for temperature, humidity, everything, all the IOQ factors in, in a matrix, right? So very few people do that as a concept. That yep. can be your brand. That, and yep. that is an educational message in and of itself. So, yeah, and that's what, I mean, for me... Because I've tried to walk away from the website and people threaten to kill me because there's a lot of good information in there. But, you know, you get to, but actually, it's a good discussion we're having here, Adam, because I'm more leaning towards I don't want to spend much more time with my website because I want to play my guitar and go fishing and hiking. And, but at the same breath, it's an incredibly valuable asset that's there in terms of knowledge. You should be monetizing yeah. it. I think you could. Give that to someone like Joel to redo it, give him some direction, get a new brand logo done by Ross and relaunch yeah. it. Yeah, it's a possibility. You know, again, it's going to be like a, probably a $20,000 investment to do that. No, no, you get that done for under 5000 Yeah? Yeah, yeah. All right, everybody, well, you heard that. <laughs> to, your, to your problem. <laughs> but then, yeah. I don't, if you listen to this, if you think Robert should uh, relaunch that, let us know in the comments. But... I think it's valuable and maybe someone could subscribe $5 or $10 a year to access that information and then, you know, to interact with you is another thing. But there is knowledge there. But there's also, we're both at that age where we want to not be working 80 hours a week, but I still want my brain to be working. I like to do 20 or 30 hours a week, right? Teaching and coaching and that. And that's part of your results there. There's a lot, lot to go on there. You could take just elements of that, you know, like secondary primary headers that's a thing on its own right i could talk for an hour on that about how much i love them yeah, right <laughs> anyway so, so think about it. anyway so we want to be yes. off topic there but i didn't want to let that go so i love that putting a bullet in it because the other choice <laughs> is you just cut it loose and it just goes out to sea and floats around like the murray celeste with yeah. on it, right? i'll just light it on fire i'll just <laughs> start there like a viking funeral with a fire <laughs> exactly <laughs> anyway man, that was a good episode i thoroughly enjoyed that yeah, Adam, again, you know. Good stuff, right? Good times. Average <laughs> went high. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, and so for those that are still listening, we have some awesome guests coming up. Yes. And we don't want to name them who they are right now, yeah. but they're, I mean, we've got some really good thought-provoking, eye-opening guests coming up, and I'm yeah. so looking forward to it. You know, and again, like we've been, as I say, almost every show, we've been really blessed to have and lucky to have the people that we've had come on, share their story. If I was a kid in school, man, I would be listening. If I can't listen to the whole episode, I'd be listening to you and I freestyle here about yeah. what work. Relative advantage. Take some of these lessons and beat the next person. That's the other way of looking at it. That's the London way of looking at it. How can I beat that dude? <laughs> there you go. All right. All right, man. See you in the next one. Take care, man. Take care. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.